and I wasn't sure how to do it if I was going to go and and uh, just go stand up in the the front like I normally do. But I figured I would just uh, sit in my office with a cup of coffee because I know that's probably what a uh, number of you are are at home here with your your coffee or whatever. Uh, so I just wanted to, to take uh, a few uh, minutes today and and uh, and just get started. So good morning. Uh, just a couple of things before we begin. First of all, uh, I, I believe I put a link to the bulletin in the description of the, the video. If it doesn't show up, you can always go to BethelMBChurch.org uh, and find the bulletins under the, the con- Connect tab. Also, you might have noticed in the bulletin that we have been including online viewers in there. And perhaps you were sick or something, you couldn't be with us, and you're wondering if you were included in that number, or perhaps you're just wondering how we calculate that number. Uh, That number is the number of people that watch the service in its entirety, or at least stream the service in its entirety, uh, from the church website or from BoxCast. It does not include Facebook viewers. So if you're watching this on, on Facebook, uh, you are important to us. It just is, you just don't count. So uh, the number of online viewers in the, in the bulletin anyway, uh, I, I want you to also notice the Board of Christian Ed has set the Vacation Bible School dates. Those dates are June 16th through the 20th. There are some other really important announcements in the bulletin, especially uh, some changes, how we're going to do camp scholarships. I think at this point, you can just read that change in the, in the bulletin insert online. And if you have questions about it, just send me an email or a text or something this week, and I'll try to be really clear about that next week and answer all of the questions that you might have about that change uh, going forward. Having uh, said that, we just we need to get down to, to business. I believe that Sunday is the Lord's Day, even though sometimes the weather makes it difficult to, to meet uh, together physically, which is, is preferable. Uh, there's really no substitute for meeting together, but that doesn't mean that we just don't do anything. Technology has given us a, an avenue to, to meet together, to worship together, even though we are uh, sitting at home or, or in our office. Again, it's just not the same. Uh, it isn't the option that I was longing for this morning, but it's still a, a privilege for me to serve you this way. Having said that, let's just take some time and, and go to Romans chapter 10. Uh, we're going to start looking at verses uh, 8 through 10 this morning. Let me just read uh, verses 5 through 12, and then let's just pray and, and we'll begin. Uh, the, the text says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, 
we know that Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray that as we look into your word this morning, we see him exalted as Lord, that we would submit to his lordship and rule in our lives. We pray that this truth would, would lead us to an ever-increasing dependence on Jesus Christ, who died for us, who was raised in victory, so that we too might live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A while back in the Christian world, there was quite a controversy. It wasn't like some of the large controversies that we think of recently that have infiltrated the church. It wasn't a pastor that abused his position of authority uh, as he was leading. It wasn't questionable mishandling of funds or anything like that. It wasn't a sexual abuse scandal. Uh, these are issues in the life of the evangelical church, and they're ongoing, and they're extremely serious. And this controversy is, is still ongoing, and it's, it's still serious, but it isn't in the forefront as it was uh, years ago now. This was a, a theological controversy, and, and it made what made it such a, a big disagreement at the time was the, the weight of, of the proponents on each side. On one side, you have what was come to known as, as the Dallas Doctrine. On the other, other side was the Lordship position. John MacArthur was the main proponent of the Lordship position. Uh, the Dallas Doctrine, as it was called, uh, it was called that because the main proponents of that position were out of Dallas Theological Seminary. Zane Hodges, Charles Ryrie are names that you might have heard of. Uh, they were a couple of the big names. Uh, the controversy has come to be known as the Lordship Salvation Controversy. I, I remember I was exposed to this controversy when I was in school in Florida. My home church in Montana had a, a pastor at the time who was reading uh, a lot of Zane Hodges and, and those guys from the Dallas school and was pushing some of those views on the church. And some of the things uh, that the pastor was saying just wasn't sitting well with people in the pew. They, they were comparing it to, to Scripture, and it just wasn't matching up. I remember I went to the library at... at um, the Baptist College of Florida picked up the book by Zane Hodges. It was entitled Absolutely Free. I read it, and even as a, a very novice student of the Bible at that point, recognized that the book was a horrendous treatment of the scriptures. It became clear that, that Hodges was what we call an antinomian. That word comes from the uh, two Greek words meaning against law, and, and basically his position was that Christians are not obligated to keep the law. In fact, a, all, all a person must do to be saved is at one time believe, and then they could go on and, and live their life any way they wanted, even go as, so far as to deny Christ, as long as they believed at one point in, in time they were good to go. Repentance then was, was optional. It was not a requirement for salvation in any way, shape, or form. I mean, how could it be otherwise if the law didn't matter? One illustration in the book that I remember by, was by Hodges. Uh, he was making a reference to the, the book of James, where James says that, that faith without works is, is dead. He says that if he sees a dead body on the street, he could make a, 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 an assumption. And that, was what the, and that is that that dead person had been alive at one point. He said, that's the way it is with many. They are dead in sin and that they are not living in obedience in any way, shape, or form. They, they could be denying Christ. They could be dead and still could have been alive at one point. And if they were alive at one point, if they prayed the sinner's prayer for, God would not deny them because there was life in them at one point. It was taking the, the doctrine of eternal security to the extreme. Come to Christ and believe, and then go on, live your life any way you want to. Deny Christ if you wish, and you don't have to worry you're still a Christian. We have enough people that in, in the Christian world that, that believe something like this without ever hearing of the Dallas Doctrine and the, the, that, that heresy that was being published and, and taught to, to future pastors in seminary and, and given that kind of credibility. It was so dangerous. And John MacArthur 
seeing the danger and the perversion of the, the gospel, wrote a, a book in response to Hodges, and, and that book was called The Gospel According to Jesus. It was very popular. Uh, you might have heard of it. I remember it, I was in school then. I, I went to the library there again, picked up that book as well, and, and read it. It made a lot of sense. In essence, MacArthur said that Jesus must be Lord of the person in, in order for them to be saved. And he really focused on a lot of those difficult statements of, of Jesus, like, if you don't leave your father and mother, you're not worthy of me. If you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. This position came known as the, the lordship salvation position. Jesus must be Lord. Or to say it a little bit differently, uh, that, that Jesus must be the Lord of your life in order for one to be a Christian. It's interesting that since the publication of the gospel according to Jesus, there's been a, a second edition of that where, where MacArthur kind of walked back some of his conclusions a little bit. Basically, what happened in the, the Lordship Salvation debate is that on, on one side, the Dallas Doctrine, uh, you have people that deny any evidence of work and salvation altogether. They go so far as to suggest that one can live any way they want to and still have a favorable relationship with God, even in denying Him. On the other side, the Lordship side, uh, John went too far. Uh, he went too far the other way. He, he bordered on adding works into salvation. If, if you want to be a Christian, you must be willing. You got to do this. You got to deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow Jesus, and count all loss inside of him. Uh, the lordship debate, as is, is I've come to, to grapple with it uh, more and more over the years, really expe- expresses two different extremes that we ought to be careful of. Now, I will say that John MacArthur's purpose was to protect the gospel. And that desire to protect the gospel was right. He just went too, too far. But I believe he has since walked back some of that. He takes a much better perspective now. And even in the second edition of that book, he really puts things in a, in a lot of a, a better light. I bring, this, I bring up this controversy in the, in the church here at the onset because in verse 9 of our text, we see that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Certainly, from this verse alone, we must admit that Jesus must be confessed as Lord to be saved. What exactly does that mean? Uh, we're going to look into that a little bit this morning, but let's just make something else uh, clear about these verses before we get too far ahead of ourselves. Sometimes when people come to these verses, they want to make it in an ordered list of Um, what we must do in order to be saved. And that's clearly not what Paul is doing here. Listen to to how James Boyce puts it. He says, and I quote, Paul is not not providing an ordered list of steps to salvation or contrasting items of belief that are internal with other items of belief that are external. Those kinds of distractions are are misleading and and not not the point. And that's the end of the quote. So according to Boyce, This is not an ordered list. It's not Paul saying this is what must internally happen in your heart for you to be a Christian. This is what must things look like externally. You must confess. You must do this in in this way to be a Christian. Boyce rightly calls this kind of interpretation here a, a distraction and misleading. Boyce goes on, and I quote, Rather, taken together, the verses indicate that the items Paul is speaking of are actually... All, of the, all in one package, the confession that Jesus is Lord and the belief that God raised him from the dead are both parts of faith's content. That is, they are equally parts of the gospel. They are both truths that we are to believe and then, second, confess to one another. That's the end of the quote. We so often want a list of do this, do that, do then the other thing, and, and then you can be saved. 
But the scriptures are clear. The only thing that required is the only thing that is required to be justified before God or saved from sin is faith. So to come up with a, a list of things that must happen in order for one to be a, a Christian is exactly what Boyce said. It, it's a distraction. It's misleading. That's not, that's not his point. The point of what Paul is speaking of here is, is faith content. What does it look like to have a true saving faith? And the answer to that question is found in, in these verses. I've entitled the message, the, the Heart of Christian Preaching. And that is because at its core, Christian preaching is to, to herald the gospel is to exhort and and call people to faith in Jesus Christ. Go back to verse 8. Here's what Paul is is making reference to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 30, right? And he he adds some interpretation as as Moses declares that what they have is is in the law and it's right there. They don't need to cross the seas or ascend into heaven for it. It's right there. It's in their heart. And Paul says, and this is the word of faith that we proclaim to you. And I would make the case that verse 9 and and verse 10 then are Paul expressing the content of Christian preaching what is being proclaimed, what is the the word of faith that's being exalted or exhorted to them. It isn't a list of do's and don'ts that one must do to gain eternal life. It's what saving faith looks like. The confession that Jesus is Lord and the belief that God raised him from the dead are both parts of the content of saving faith. They are both truths that we believe and then confess to others. In other words, preaching should contain both truths. And a Christian then is defined as one who believes and confesses them openly. Just contrast this so far with what we've said about the teaching of the Dallas Doctrine, or specifically Zane Hodges. He said that one might even deny Christ and not believe anymore that, that he is Lord and, and raised from the dead, let alone confess it to others. As long as that person did at one time. I mean, Hodges says that those people are a believer, but Paul here says, no, they're not. It's quite a contrast. For Hodges, faith must have only been present for a short instance. It could come and go, but then yet the person's eternal security is secure. What Paul is saying here is that the one who has faith, saving faith, not only embraced Jesus as Lord at one time, but continues to do so. Faith characterizes the Christian. So understand this. These verses are are not a checklist of things to be uh, ticked off a list to become a Christian. What is required for salvation is faith. That is the the message that Paul proclaimed. That is the heart of Christian preaching. That is Paul's point in in verse 8. Now we see in the the next verses what this faith looks like, what saving faith is. Let's just work our way through the phrases here, although we will only get to the the first one today because it's the foundation of of all that that follows it. In in verse 9, you see that phrase, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, let's just start there. The statement is absolutely amazing. Now notice what's happening here and what is not happening here. The person is not making Jesus to be Lord. He isn't saying that Jesus must become the Lord of your life before you can become a Christian. That isn't at all what is being said. The fact is one cannot make Jesus to be Lord. He is Lord. I get a kick out of some of the people that are all fired up about politics and after Donald Trump won the election, you would see signs and social media posts everywhere of people saying, uh, not my president, saying that I may live in the United States, Donald Trump may have won the election, but he's not my president, as if saying that can actually change reality. The fact is, whether one agrees with the Donald or, or not, regardless if they voted for him, he is the president of the United States. And Jesus is Lord. Now, not everyone submits to Jesus as Lord, just like apparently there's those who are not submitting to Donald Trump as president. And I think that's what they mean when they say, not my president. 
that they are not going to submit to him. We know that there are those that don't submit to Jesus as Lord, but we also know that there will be a day when everyone on the earth, under the earth, and in heaven will bow the knee before him. What's happening here, then, is a confession. It's an acknowledgement of the fact that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord regardless, uh, regardless because um, the person who has exercised faith in Jesus Christ acknowledges or confesses his lordship. Now the question is, is what does that mean? What does it look like? I mean, last week we dealt with this very generally. We said it was a, a confession. It was confessing that Jesus was who he claimed to be. The question still remains, doesn't it? Who is it that Jesus claimed to be? He claimed to be Lord, but what does that mean? I would suggest that the confession of Jesus as Lord is at least three things. First, it's a confession of the person of Jesus, that he is the Christ. I mean, it's fascinating that the writers of the the New Testament use the word kurios, the Lord, to translate the name Yahweh in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They didn't just use the the Hebrew name Yahweh. They, They could have done that the personal name of God, but they used Lord. So when they went back to the Old Testament and they translated that into the Greek, they used the word Lord. And then when they got to the New Testament and they started talking about Jesus, the same title was given. He was the Lord or or Yahweh or Jehovah. In Luke 2.11, for instance, today in the town of David, our Savior has been born to you, Christ the Lord. And that phrase there is, is really associating that with he is Yahweh. In, in Philippians chapter 2, a text that we already mentioned, and we're told there that, that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he was equal with God. He emptied himself, took on the nature of a servant, was obedient to the point of death, but God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every other name, and that at that name every knee should bow, and every tongue should confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. The point is when the early Christians confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, they knew exactly what they were confessing, that he was Yahweh, that he was the the ruler, the creator and sovereign over everything, that Jesus Christ is God, that he is the Lord, in that he is the sovereign ruler of the world, he is worthy of all worship, and he is worthy of all of our obedience. Second, the confession of Jesus as Lord is not only tied to who he is, but it's also tied to what he came to do, his work. I think John Stott links the title of Lord, Jesus is Lord, to the fact that Jesus came to save when he says this, quote, the title, excuse me, the title Lord is a symbol of Christ's victory over the forces of evil. If Jesus has been exalted over the principalities and powers of evil, as indeed he has, this is the reason why he has been called Lord. If Jesus has been proclaimed Lord as he has, it is because these powers are under his feet. He has conquered them on the cross, and therefore our salvation, that is today, that he is our rescue from sin, Satan, fear, and death. And this is due that that victory is secured, our salvation. In other words, Jesus came to accomplish salvation, and he did it, and he is therefore Lord. Third, the term Lord here has to do with Christ's rule over his people and his church. 
Jesus is the Lord. Literally, the word Lord means master or ruler. And Jesus does what masters do. They rule. They exercise authority. The fact is, Jesus is the Lord over people. He's the Lord over his church. And Stott here lists six areas of Jesus' rule. The first is our minds. Think through these with me for a moment. If Jesus is the Lord, then he is the Lord of our thinking. Jesus should rule over what you think about. I mean, this is a pretty private thing, I know, because there's really no way for me to know what you are thinking. The fact is, Jesus is if Jesus is the good teacher and we are his disciples, we are learners and learners learn from their master, from their teacher, and what we are to learn from him then ought to shape our thinking, shouldn't it? Secondly, Jesus is the Lord of our ethics. What is right and wrong? I mean, that's ethics, right? Is it right to have an abortion if you were in this or that situation? I mean, that's an ethical question, an extreme one. Is it right to, to lie if your life or someone you care about is in danger? I mean, that's a question of ethics. But so is the little white lie. Is it okay to, to lie if it really doesn't matter if it's going to help somebody? I mean, there, there are a great number of Christians that, that justify their behavior in some way, shape, or form. I, I know this is, is wrong, but, they say, we justify our greed, our jealousy, or our anger. I mean, you fill in the blank because we think we have a good reason for what we do. And the question is, is Jesus the Lord or the master, the ruler of your ethics? Or are you? What determines how we live and act? Is it Jesus or is it you? If it's you, then perhaps the problem is that we're not submitting to Jesus as Lord in that area. Third would be our careers. Really, the, the point here is asking if, if we're submitting to Jesus as Lord when it comes to all of our time. Do we compartmentalize and, and treat our, our work or our vocation differently than we do attending church and, and church activities and, and family time? I, I know people that are totally different at church than they are at work. At church, they're kind, they're forgiving, they're loving. There, there is always a smile and a desire to do what is right. But at, at work, what is right always revolves around money. There's, there's no smiling, there's no kindness, there's always a, a harsh attitude. They're, they're not quick to forgive. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, that work is unimportant. It, it is important, and it should be treated as important. But who is it that rules our lives at work? Do we submit to the lordship of Jesus at work? just as we do in our, our time with our families, our church activities? Not only is Jesus the Lord of the workplace, but he's the, the Lord in our churches as well. Jesus is the, the head of the church. He's the ruler of the church. Order in the life of the church stems from the fact that, that Jesus is Lord and that we're to submit to that rulership, that, that rule in his church. I mean, there are cases when members in the church pursue their own direction. They create their own direction without consulting what has been laid down in the Bible or their fellow brothers and sisters. We've hinted about this, but Jesus is not only the Lord of our own personal life. He isn't only our personal Lord, but he's the Lord of the church, and he's the Lord of all of life and all of nations. The fact is, Jesus is the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and we are his representatives proclaiming who Jesus is, that he is Lord, and that if people do not submit to him, they do so at their own peril. I'm reminded of of Acts chapter 17, and in Paul's message there, he speaks of uh, the idols that they have in, in Athens. And there's this statue to an unknown God. And Paul uses this, and he starts telling them 
of this true God that, he is pro- that he's preaching to them. And he gets to the point and he says, there was a time in which God, this God overlooked ignorance, but now this God commands everyone everywhere to repent. In other words, this is the God in which they are to submit to above all others. In fact, all of these other gods are nothing. The God of the Bible, the one that Paul was proclaiming, is the one and only true God, and he is Lord. He is ruler over all of life. The phrase, Jesus is Lord, also has a a missional implication as well. I think of the Great Commission for a moment. James Boyce says that the, the lordship of Jesus is the most powerful of missionary incentives. It is as Lord of our lives that Jesus tells us to go into all of the world, And because we confess him to be Lord, that is exactly what we do. We go into all of the world. That is our our marching orders. We do it out of submitting to our Lord. We go into all of the world. We proclaim Jesus as Lord. I mean, if we submit to him as Lord in our lives, then we too will go and proclaim that message. In fact, that's what Paul is is saying in verse 8. This is the message that we proclaim to you. Why? Because Jesus is our Lord and we submit to that lordship. We really just talked about that phrase here, confessing Jesus as Lord for a little bit today and, and what that, that means. And that was enough, I think, about uh, for sure. Let me just share with you uh, two things here in closing. First, don't misunderstand what's being proclaimed here. I'm not saying that, and Paul is not saying, that in order for you to become a Christian, you must submit to Christ as Lord in, in all of these areas perfectly, Although a, a total submission to Jesus as Lord is required um, because he is Lord after all. Remember, we are speaking of what faith looks like. And faith is resting on who Jesus is. That he is Lord, but he's not just Lord, he's our Lord. I would guess that if you're like me, that you hear all of those items, those six, six things that we mentioned. Jesus is Lord of our ethics, our, our missions, our, our minds, the list goes on. And you say, uh, but I haven't done a good job of that. Is Jesus the Lord of my mind in, in every moment? Uh, probably not. As a Christian, you know that he is the Lord of our minds, but you also know that you don't submit to that lordship. That our, our minds sometimes think of awful things and we don't even try to. That we don't obey Philippians 4.8, where we are told to, to think of, of good and noble things and, and set our mind on, on those. True faith, saving faith, and I, and I really want you to grasp this, does not say that the Christian is perfect or even that he's characterized by his effort in these areas. The Christian is characterized by faith in the one who submitted to the Father perfectly. Jesus was, was completely and perfectly obedient and we trust in him, we rely on him. Now I've said this before, and that is that the Christian life is characterized by faith and repentance. Now when it comes to salvation, we call faith and repentance conversion. Get that. When we talk about conversion, what we're talking about is faith and repentance. When a person has been born again, regenerated, they place their faith in Christ. They trust and rest on his work on their behalf. And the other side of that coin is repentance. Faith is, is trusting and resting in Christ, turning to him, abiding to him. And repentance is leaving our sin and, and rebellion and clinging to Christ in faith. But that not only happens in conversion, it happens throughout the life of the believer. We are are continually abiding and resting in what Christ has done. And in in doing 
that we are turning from our sin. In other words, we are constantly embracing the gospel. Is Jesus Lord? Absolutely. It is the confession of every Christian. And every Christian then is constantly living out that confession in faith and repentance, always getting back to the posture of submission to our Lord, to our Lord Jesus Christ. When we fall away, we are confessing him as Lord and we come back to him and we submit to that lordship. We are constantly putting to practice our submission to Jesus as Lord. When we fall short of, of the obedience that is required of us, it is that same Lord that we run to in faith because he is the one who achieved what we could not. Our salvation, our freedom from sin and death, and, and we cling to him in faith. One more thing. The story of Polycarp, uh, perhaps you, you know it. Uh, Polycarp was a disciple of John, right? the guy that wrote the, the Gospel of John. Uh, Polycarp died in, in February 22, AD 156. He was 86 years old. You want to know what killed him? It wasn't old age. It was his confession of Jesus as Lord. He had a, a great reputation. I mean, I, I'm sure he was a nice old guy. Um, and those that were taking him to his death begged him saying, what harm is there in saying that Caesar is Lord and saving yourself? What did he have to do to save himself? Simply call Caesar Lord, but he would not. In fact, he said this, and I quote, For 86 years I have been Christ's slave, and he has done me no wrong. Now, how can I blasphemy my king who saved me? Think about that. He could not call Caesar Lord because there was only one Lord and ruler, and that is the ruler that he submitted to. To suggest or to give the title to Caesar of Lord would be blasphemy. Those that told Polycarp's story after he died said this, and I love this. They said, Polycarp was arrested by Herod when Philip of Trollus was high priest and Statius Quadralalus was governor. But our Lord Jesus Christ was reigning forever. To him be the glory, honor, and majesty, and eternal dominion from generation to generation. Amen. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Here was the, the people that went back and, and looked at, at Polycarp's life, and they were writing a, a history, and they want people to know when exactly he died. He died when a, a certain guy was, was high priest, and another guy was, was governor, so people could could really put this in, in this time frame. But they made it very clear who was the Lord, who was the absolute ruler, and who they submitted to, and who Polycarp submitted to. There is no question over who is, who is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is, is the ruler. He is the ruler uh, now. He always will be. He always was. There is one day in which everyone will acknowledge that. The difference between the, the Christian and the non-Christian is that, that Christians acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. They confess it. They continually recognize that, that their lives are falling short, that they're not living into submission to that rulership, and they respond by clinging to Jesus Christ in faith because he's the only one that lived out that perfect obedience on their behalf and his righteousness becomes our righteousness. And they turn from their sin and, 
in repentance and they embrace him. Constantly living out that posture of, of submission in their life. Don't ever fall into the trap of, of believing the, the Dallas doctrine. It says it, it doesn't matter. As long as you believed it at one point, that's, that's, that's a works mentality. Faith becomes a, a work. As long as you believed, as long as you said a sinner's prayer, as long as you did this, it, everything else doesn't matter because you did this one thing. We're saying that the only requirement for salvation is faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the Christian life is a constant confession of that. It's a constant confession of, of Jesus Christ as Lord. That he raised from the dead. That he did what he came to do. He accomplished our salvation and we cling to that. And when we read in scripture or somebody comes to us and we find out that, that hey, there's an area in our life and we're not living in submission to our Lord. That we have confessed. And we come back to him and submit to him in, in faith and repentance. That's why the, the Christian life is always about faith and repentance. That's the posture of the Christian. Well, thanks for, for joining me uh, live this morning. Feel bad we couldn't have church. Feel bad I couldn't, couldn't see you. But uh, glad to see a, a number of people on, online here. And um, just want to pray with you as we close this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the, the great love that you have for us, that, that while we were yet sinners, you, you died for us. Thank you that, um, that you love us so much to, that when we don't submit to you as, as Lord, when we fall short, that you still embrace us, that you wait for us to, to come back in, in faith and repentance and submit to you. And I pray that you would give us a, a heart that would, just long to submit to you in, in every area that we can, that you might be uh, the Lord of our, of our ethics, of our, of our thinking, and those other areas that we mentioned. Lord, we think of, of what we do, the right and, and wrong, and the way our mind wanders, and the way we live and act toward other people. Lord, I pray that, that you would rule in those areas. And where we fall short, I pray that that we would come back and we would cling to you and, and rest in you. And that would be the, the greatest motivator to, to live a, a life of obedience and submission to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.